this is the bail list. Uh, we take the information and pass it over the coordination or any information we have, especially a phone call, uh, and try and get people rescued. So that's thankfully uh, something like that doesn't happen very often because that, that is a distressing uh, example uh, for our staff and for the family and people on board, obviously. I am really excited that the bail list is now supported by Awesome Woodies. Awesome Woodies specialises in handcrafting top quality, sustainable Australian made training tools for climbers. Thanks so much to all those who entered our giveaway to win an Awesome Woodies Cliffboard Micro last month. Go and check out all of their products online. You'll find them on social media at Awesome Woodies as well. And you can find a selection of their gear at Wild Earth. Wild Earth is, as always, an amazing sponsor of The Bail List. Wherever you are on your climbing or outdoor adventuring journey, they have all the top quality gear you need to achieve your goals and make unforgettable memories. Check them out on the socials at Wild Earth Australia. This is The Bail List. Hey, I'm Nicole Bronx. We're mixing it up this month on the bail list. Since episode one, I've been talking about how important it is to carry a PLB, a personal locator beacon, with you on your adventures. But for me personally, I've never actually activated my beacon. And if I'm honest, I don't really know that much about how the whole thing works. And I figured there are probably a few other people out there in the same boat. So... This is a deep dive into the world of emergency response with the people who know firsthand what it's like to be on the receiving end of a PLB distress call. Uh, g'day, my name's James Friday, or people, a lot of people call me Jim, of course. Um, I'm a duty manager at the Australian Maritime Safety Authority and the Response Centre here in Braddon in the ACT. Um, I work, uh, I have worked in the past uh, for New South Wales Police for over 30 years and have been a duty manager here in Canberra for 12 months. There's three duty managers, uh, 34 staff involved, and we rescue people each and every day. Hi, James Friday from the Australian Maritime Safety Authority. How are you doing? Yeah, good morning to you. How are you? Yeah, pretty well, thank you. Thanks so much for um, responding to my emails out of the blue and uh, coming on the Bail List podcast. I really appreciate it. James, one thing I'm really curious about as a rock climber, um, you know, rock climbers are not typically uh, seafaring folks. So um, the fact that uh, our distress signal goes to the Australian Maritime Safety Authority is a bit confusing to me. Why is it that you guys are the ones that get that signal? Yeah, certainly. That's a good question, which is asked many, many times. Uh, and the second question is, why are we in Canberra when we're not surrounded by the ocean? <laughs> but, uh, to answer your question, um, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority looks after all beacon and EPIRB activations uh, throughout uh, the southern oceans, covering about 10% of the, uh, uh, the world's surface, really. Uh, that includes land search and rescue and also water search and rescue and also planes and uh, aircraft that are getting in trouble. Uh, when they activate or have a landing or go missing, then we look for uh, beacon activations and to see where they are. And that way, or that way is done by uh, basically satellites pinging from the EPIRB up to 
the sky and then down to our systems here, which are um, very intricate, can pick up uh, beacons over po most parts of the world, and uh, we work on finding people who press them, whether that's by accident, contacted them, or in a real distress situation. Right, and um, you know, just take me through, if, if I were out somewhere in a remote location and got myself into trouble, um, and I press that button, can you sort of take me through a step-by-step -step process of what happens on your end when somebody presses that button? Yes, I can. So, um, so you're rock climbing and you come into some difficulty, uh, you have a slip, you've injured your ankle, whatever the case may be. So you might be on your own or with someone, they can't help you or get you down. Um, you push the button and that activates immediately. Within uh, probably half a second, that button is bounced off a satellite down to our computer systems here at Canberra and we see the activation come up on the Australian map. It comes up as a warning on our systems so we have two sides of the room. So we have aviators on one side and mariners on the other, both trained in beacon detection. And when they work together um, to find out where the beacon's coming from first, so it'll come up on the map, whether it's um, in a mountain area like uh, the Blue Mountains, say, New South Wales, or other areas in Queensland or WA. Um, and once that occurs, we can pinpoint that location down to uh, two square metres. Wow, that's pretty incredible. And what do you do from there once you've pinpointed a location? Well, our first uh, step will be to try and contact the beacon holder. So when you buy a beacon, um, you should register them. So that's uh, part of the problem that uh, we have in the search and rescue uh, arena is people either not completely registering them. So roughly about 75% of beacons are registered. Of those 75, um, another 68, 69% of those are registered correctly. So if I call you and you've got your mobile or a, con a secondary contact number like mum or dad or brother or partner, um, we can make some intelligence and calls to see where you might be at the time, um, who you're with, um, your expectation uh, out in the bush, what supplies you may have, and if you have a mobile phone that's contactable, we'll contact you on the mobile phone. Um, if we can't find any of that information um, in the first uh, five to ten minutes, um, we have our secondary uh, system in place that actually we activate our assets around the country to send to you uh, to find out where you are and, uh, and rescue you effectively. Right, so you have on call what kind of assets? Uh, chopper, fire and rescue, who, who do you actually contact? Right, we have uh, over 400 um, contracted uh, assets around the country. So we have uh, three jets uh, with a Cobham contract. They're Cobham jets based in Cairns, Essendon, down in Victoria and in Perth. And those three jets can go all around the country, out to sea, uh, within land to, uh, to do um, surveillance, uh, locate beacons, um, uh, to a pinpoint accuracy and then also take uh, footage, uh, video footage to send back to uh, Canberra so we can see uh, if there's any issues uh, and anyone stuck or anyone needing rescuing. So once that once that's done, we also send, once the Challenger jet is activated, we send whatever local assets we have. So it may be uh, Polair from police uh, get the notification and they go out as well. 
it may be surf life and rescue, it may be assets on the western side of Australia that belong to um, mining companies, but we have them on contract as well. So helicopters, yes, um, light planes and the jets effectively, uh, and on the water, obviously, um, we have uh, boats and we can use uh, normal maritime assistance guidelines with uh, ships in the area. But uh, for rock climbers, certainly it will be a jet over the top to find out where you are and if it's a dire situation and not an inadvertent activation where it's pressed accidentally, uh, a helicopter or a ground search rescue team will come to you. Right, so you always essentially send someone out to do a recce first and make sure someone's actually in distress? That's right, uh, if, if the intelligence doesn't state otherwise. Right. And um, what happens... OK, so we've, we've sort of talked about what happens in Australia if someone sets off a beacon, but I know uh, my partner, Andrew, has set off his PLB um, halfway up Mont Blanc. Someone got very altitude sick and um, yep. they needed an evacuation. So that was an Australian-registered PLB, but he was setting that off in the Mont Blanc Massif. So how does that work when it's an international distress call, but it's by an Australian citizen? If um, it's an Australian purchased uh, PLB, it will have a, a design code which is registered and certified in Australia that we pick up. Um, so that will activate our, our system here saying there's an Australian uh, registered uh, PLB alert. It may be in another country and if that's the case, we still get the detection through the satellite system and then we make calls immediately to that uh, search and rescue area to transfer coordination for them to get their own assets out. Right, and is that a lot harder for you guys when it's an international distress call? Uh, no, no, it's not. Uh, we have uh, our search and rescue partners and um, we have all the contacts around the world in our systems. Uh, once that call's made and they, the other country, just say it's France or wherever the case may be, acknowledges our coordination with the system and they may well have the, and they will have the uh, information, information come out on their system but they don't have the registration details. So we can pass that information on to them and they take coordination. Right. Um, now, <laughs> my partner uh, has done a few international climbing trips. He climbed uh, with a couple of Irish guys one time and they called the PLB the uh, make your mam cry button because, uh, as you said before, what happens is that when you set off the beacon, um, it calls a personal contact for you, an emergency contact back home, right? So if that's your mum, she's going to cry and think that something's gone horribly wrong. Um, so, you know, what, what does that mean for that person back home, though? I mean, are there things that you should do to kind of prep that person, I mean, without alarming them about what it means to be your emergency PLB contact? Well, I think um, uh, obviously it's going to be a friend or family member or a partner. Um, certainly, the first thing is to, when you have a beacon, let them know that you have a beacon, you're going away, you're going away for a trip or a bushwalk or rock climbing. Where you're going, um, the information that you, you can um, let them know that they can let us know if uh, anything um, happens where they need uh, assistance or rescue. And obviously, let know if they get a phone call from AMSA, Australian Maritime Safety Authority, to chase up uh, a beacon activation. Sometimes the button can be packed, uh, pushed accidentally, sometimes it can't be, or sometimes it's intentional. So it's about 50-50. Uh, so um, I would suggest that uh, 
something may be wrong, but try not to panic. It may be that they're lost. Uh, I just need getting out of a hard situation. So um, try not to worry, but it's a little bit hard if you're a family member or definitely mum, if mum gets that activation as well. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, for, for us personally, my partner and I, we um, choose people to be our emergency contacts who are not going to be particularly alarmed uh, in those situations. Um, so mum is definitely not on the list. Um, mum might panic, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, um, I mean, should you be in any other ways selective about the person that you have on your contact list? I mean, should it be someone who, if possible, has a bit more of an understanding about, you know, what it is you actually are doing so that they can sort of provide any uh, more detailed information to you guys about what might be happening on that climbing trip or what supplies we might have to self-rescue, those sorts of things? Yeah, paramount, absolutely paramount. So um, a, a person preferably who... Uh, will know your experience level, uh, your survival capability, you've, uh, how many years you've been rock climbing for, your expertise in that area, who's, who's with you, um, and the general survivability in relation to water, food, clothing, um, your plan, pre-planned route at the time for um, leaving and certainly arriving back. And if that uh, time passes and there's no EPIRB activation, that's also a, a trigger for us to be notified by um, next of kin or friends so we can actually go and search for people for people who don't have EPIRBs uh, or, or PLBs. Um, so that's, that's the requirement that uh, we would like to see everyone have one. If you need help, you push the button and we'll come and help you. What about situations where um, a PLB might not work. One that I'm thinking of is, um, you know, the the very well-known scenario that that film 127 Hours is based on where he was sort of trapped in a cavern. I mean, look, that's obviously very worst-case scenario <laughs> um, and I'm sure you wouldn't get many of those phone calls. But, um, you know, uh, what are the situations in which a PLB might not work? Um, inside a, a, a cave, I suppose, um, that would be one. Generally, they are pretty good. They'll be activated everywhere. We have, I'll give you an example, with a PLB, if it's in a shed uh, and it, the battery starts going, uh, and sometimes they uh, activate because um, they're supposed to have the battery swapped every five years or so. Uh, and to ensure that it's registered under your name, it's not sold to someone else and those details are updated. But um, if it's out in the open or in a building, it will come up every time on the satellite. So nine times out of 10, it will. If it doesn't work, it's got low battery. Um, that may be uh, an issue. So it's always best to check the battery uh, certification change date and make sure that happens every single time. Uh, with a clean, powerful battery, you will get the activation that we will get the message and then we can send help. And what about, um, you know, you said sort of like a, a remote um cavern or a you know a canyon or something like that are there many situations out in the natural world where a plb just wouldn't work because you know not enough access to to being picked up by a satellite uh i don't think so not most of the time no most, majority of the time it will work so it's a, there's either a failure or there's there's no capability because you're underground so um Otherwise, if you're rock climbing, uh, even in a canyon, there's uh, still a 
uh, areas to look at the sky unless you're underground itself uh, it should activate and we should receive it okay well now i just want to know why the guy in the 127 hours movie couldn't get a signal out i i don't know um but uh that's good to know that's very reassuring yeah and i can't answer that one it was it was a movie also imagine Hollywood, so based on a true story, so we'll just leave it at that, shall we? Okay, yeah, fair (laughs) enough. (laughs) So, James, what I'm also curious about is, you know, from your perspective in the uh, control room or wherever the sort of distress calls come into, um, what is the vibe like in there when a distress call comes in? I mean, um, I'm assuming you guys don't panic, but, but, um, you know it must sort of take a bit of a toll on you regardless because people's lives are at stake and you're obviously responding to that. Yeah, exactly. So I'll, I'll just give you a bit of background about our, um, our, our centre. Um, it's a response centre here. We've got 34 staff that work uh, shift work, 12-hour uh, shifts day and night. We're always manned 24-7 uh, all year round. Um most of our staff um, either have a military defence police background um, or air, uh, an air services or uh, aviation or navy background. Uh, so they're in their second careers, a lot of them. They are used to pressure uh, and they handle it very well. So when a, a beacon activation comes in, it's, uh, what they do is basically straight onto it, onto the uh, system, find out where they are, they're very professional, they work well under pressure, they've been doing it for quite some time. Uh, we have uh, you know, ladies and gents who work here, very experienced, and um, because there's only 34 of them in the country, they're, uh, they do their job very well and they're um, very dedicated people. What's the process for um, becoming part of that team? Part of that team? Well, there's not many... Uh, <laughs> um, People move on unless they retire, really, at this point in time. So um, every few years or so, there's an intake taken. Um, there might be between one and four to five people taken. Uh, it goes out uh, into the community as a job advertisement. Obviously, you need to know about uh, uh, aviation and or uh, mariner and search and rescue, uh, the way that works around the country. Um, as I said, people have the background, so we have a lot of uh, ex-police, ex-navy, uh, ex-pilots uh, even who uh, come to us, so they're very good with numbers, systems, uh, GPS, satellite information already, and they just hone their skills and uh, go through a training process over about six months if they become a search and rescue officer. Um, and that gets them onto level one, and it goes all the way up to level eight, where people have been here for 20 years. Wow, so we can rest assured that if we ever do send out a distress call, we'll be in very safe hands? You will be in extremely safe hands. These people are very professional, um, have dealt with uh, a lot of, as you said, uh, a lot of issues. Um, some of them uh, don't have a happy ending. Uh, they really, uh, people do die and pass away or can't be found. But uh, we have systems in place for our staff welfare, but uh, they do a very, very professional job and a, a great job for the Australian people. That's amazing. Um, can you give, I wonder, a couple of sort of specific examples, whether it's recent ones or things that have stood out in your mind? Um, first of all, of maybe like how a, a, a really successful search and rescue operation has gone and then maybe one that, you know, has, has not been so successful. 
Um, I don't know if you can do that without like violating anyone's privacy, but um, yeah, I, I would yeah, just be interested yeah, to know. Some, some, yeah, some of the unsuccessful ones I can't mention because uh, the coroner still hasn't got to deal with them, so I won't, I'll steer clear of them. Um, there, there are there are issues. I'll give you a good one, which is from a, a shipping point of view, and I'll give you another one from a, um, a mountain biking incident uh, up in Northern Territory. So we'll start with a mountain bike mountain biker. So there's a 60 year old. Uh, with a medical condition, uh, went mountain biking uh, near Kakadu. Uh, it would have been last October, around when the state of origin was on in New South Wales. Um, he went over overdue and couldn't be found. So um, there was a triangulation done on his mobile phone. He didn't have an, a, a PLB, but um, we sort of pinpointed a general area uh, for him. So we do have other ways of finding people as well uh, if they don't have a PLB, but of course PLBs will let me know or let us know exactly where you are there and then within seconds. Uh, but uh, we triangulated an area, um, got a helicopter up with uh, night vision because it had become night time and he had a medical condition and he may not have survived the night. So um, going through that general area, sweeping through with uh, two choppers, um, they found his uh, body heat on the vision and sent a rescue team in uh, from the Northern Territory Police uh, with the ambulance and located him safely, taken to hospital and lived to tell his tale. So that was a good a good outcome. Yeah. And what about the, uh, the, the maritime example? The maritime example, um, and this is just an example we get, we, we get lots of... Uh, the banana boats up in Papua uh, New Guinea, uh, we get about... Geez, 15 of those a month where they go missing. They don't have um, EPIRBs or PLBs. Um, being Papua New Guinea, uh, not everyone has the capability and the equipment, uh, and, we, and we often are sent out our jets searching for those and assisting Papua New Guinea in the Torres Strait because we are that's our closest neighbour uh, and there's an area there where it's a shared responsibility. But I can give you one example of a ship that uh, was coming through the Indian Ocean uh, last November um, and the deckhand it was a, a bulk carrier uh, carrying a um, big fan uh, farm or fan equipment for those big um, electric fans you see around Canberra or around the country to generate electricity uh, those big windmills so uh, one of the deckhands was uh, warming up the barbecue for a barbecue lunch and cleaning it and it exploded um, with uh, the cleaner the that ignited and he received third degree burns all the way from his chest down to his knees uh, and um, all over the hands and arms. So that was a critical, critical incident that happened on the ship. Um, the ship has made contact with us, so that's one of our factors. It doesn't always have to be about PLBs, but um, we get the phone call uh, and the information comes through that uh, they've got an incident on board where they need a, a urgent medical evacuation and their jobs that we do uh, day in and day out. Um, sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not. Um, getting people back in time to a hospital where they can be resuscitated and, um, uh, again, live to tell the tale. Um, because the Indian Ocean is such a vast uh, area, we can't get our jet out there because of the distance to get back in time. It can't be refuelled. So we had to uh, call upon the Australian Navy and the Defence Forces to send a ship out there with a full crew, doctor and nurses, to steam towards the ship coming into Perth uh, and meet them uh, halfway, take carriage of that uh, patient, uh, transfer him over 
and then get him onto the Australian mainland. So uh, he was a Dutch uh, national. Uh, he did survive, but uh, I believe he's still in hospital in Perth, so uh, ongoing uh, recovery to his uh, severe burning injuries. Wow, that's incredible. So you really, I mean, being able to call in the Navy, you really just do have any resource at your disposal to do what it takes to save people's lives, right? Exactly right. Australian yeah. Border Force will use their ships, their planes, if need be, uh, the Defence Force um, all over the country. If we can't get something specifically then, um, we, will, we will call upon them to help us. Uh, we also have um, what we call an off-panel contract. So um, say you have a, 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 a plane flying between Bathurst and Sydney Airport, just a small one. There's an EPIRB goes over the goes over the Blue Mountains. They're flying over the top of the time. We can actually ask that plane because we can, we track all of where the planes are around the country uh, and contact that pilot if they can uh, have a quick diversion and have a look for us. Um, so they're there. They have great opportunity at the time. It may be a 15 minute window where we can use them as opposed to getting a jet up and taking more than an hour to get from Melbourne or Cairns. Uh, so that's that's a diversion tactic we do use, uh, and also proves very successful uh, using the um, uh, both uh, recreational and commercial pilots around the country if they're able to help at the time as well. So considering the fact that you have all of these resources at your disposal and you can also just, you know, tap into regular punters out flying around and get them to help with the search and rescue mission, generally, how long does it take between the time you might realise someone's in distress and the time that you're actually performing a rescue? Depends where they are. Uh, depends on the location. So uh, with the jet, it's a 30-minute time. The, the crews are on standby. Uh, all the time in, in those three places around the country, Perth, Cairns and Essendon in Victoria. Um, so 30 minutes to get up in the air, depending where they are. Uh, say they're in the middle of the country and we task Essendon to go to Alice Springs area. Um, it will take hour and a half, probably hour and a half to get them over top to two hours tops. Um, and in that meantime, the police are also performing their own uh, coordination so we work uh, very closely with the emergency services around the country. And once we, especially for a land rescue, so rock climbing and, and, and uh, finding people in need of uh, assistance where they push the button for distress, um, we will pass coordination on once we find those people and know that uh, police ambulance are able to get to them. Once they've got to them, they take hold of that coordination. Um, we sign off from that job and wait for the next one and uh, I can just let you know we do about 8,000 jobs a year whether it's uh, on land or in ocean or in the air and last year just to give you a, an appreciation of the numbers uh, incidents with beacons uh, itself were 1,850 uh, just in Australia mm-hmm. so uh, there's, there's lots happening all the time. Yeah, are instances with beacons increasing and do you think that's because more people are getting them? Absolutely, absolutely. Australia has one of the highest registration, beacon registration um, uh, per capita in the world, uh, which is what we love to see. Um, and it just makes perfect common sense. So you buy a beacon, you register it correctly, you have the, a friend or a partner know where you're going and be the emergency contact. Um, you go out, unfortunately you might get in trouble, hopefully you don't, but if you get stuck or uh, injured, um, that activation will, will get someone to you. Uh, so that's what we want to see. And um, 
and promote it's not a legislative requirement to actually have a PLB but um, those who actually go out and uh, do those adventure things are really advised uh, to take one with them and there's a lot of companies and um, areas around the country uh, where you can go for bushwalks uh, and the centres there actually rent them out for the day even so that's also a great assistance for us. Oh yeah that's good to know yeah Um, I'm curious James as well about uh, you know like particularly gnarly kind of um, alpine distress calls you know like I said before um, my partner activated his PLB um, whilst climbing Mont Blanc do you get many of those from Australians I guess not so much in the past year but you know prior to prior to COVID did you get many of those kinds of distress calls? Uh, we get them from uh, the Alpine regions, both summer and winter, um, from time to time. Um, obviously, the in the cooler months where there is snow there and we're not affected by COVID, um, they do have their own ski rescue teams and uh, and police capability up there to find missing people. But um, certainly, we uh, assist the police in that regard. So if anything comes through, we can give the coordination uh, and the exact location, and they respond on the skidoos and all that sort of stuff. So. Um, it's just we work hand in hand with emergency services all the time. Even in summer in Trepo, um, with the mountain biking, is very popular there. So they go all the way up to the top uh, and ride down the mountain tracks. And there's also the walk that goes up to Mount Kosciuszko. So there has been an incident only a week ago, a week and a half ago, where some uh, bushwalkers collected a, a PLB when they uh, went to the National Park Information Centre, hired it for the day. One of them uh, injured their ankle, pushed the button, um, emergency services that came to us, emergency services found them uh, soon after and the chopper was called in and took them to Kuma Hospital. So uh, an, another uh, good result and something simple like a PLB. Um, the the technology is not simple, but buying one, registering it and carrying it is not a hard task. Yeah, well, I bet they're glad that they um, put the extra effort in to, uh, to go and rent one out. And that's right, and and the, the people there that run those uh, those um, adventure uh, businesses actually promote the PLB and uh, advise that it's in their best interest, and it doesn't cost that much money for a day's rental, uh, really, anyway. So it's, uh, it's something that's a, a safeguard against any accidents that may occur. Yeah, absolutely. James, can you think of an example off the top of your head of um, an international distress call and how you've kind of put that into action whether it's you know someone calling from the top of a mountain or you know uh, another kind of example of of when you've had a distress call come in from overseas uh international wise is mainly uh, not with bushwalkers or anything like that internationally not not to my recollection but uh, we do get uh ships in distress uh, that are sinking late last year well probably october last year we had a uh uh, a ship um, in the area, in the Asian area of Japan and Korea, uh, carrying uh, sheep, or oh, sorry, cattle from Australia that went down, uh, went to New- from New Zealand through Australia uh, and around, and it w- went through a hurricane and lost at sea. So we actually got a phone call from one of the um, crew members saying um, they were in dire trouble, the ship was listing at the time. Um, there's 40 odd people involved, oh, wow. uh, or 40 odd people on the ship itself, plus uh, over 500 head of cattle, uh, uh, live cattle, and um, that ship was lost. And um, 
not recovered. Uh, they found two uh, survivors. So we actually got that information, shared it with our search and rescue partners uh, in Japan and the J- Japan's uh, Coast Guard, which are a military uh, organisation, uh, sent out a huge amount of assets trying to find more survivors and uh, find that uh, people but uh, couldn't do so because of an ongoing hurricane. Yeah, I think I remember that story. That made the news because um, there were some Australians on that ship, or, or one Australian, I think. One Australian, one New Zealander. I think Australian was a vet at the time, and um, unfortunately they uh, perished in that uh, incident. Um, but they're the sorts of jobs that we get internationally that are coming to our centre. That, um, again, being international, uh, we take the information and pass it over, the coordination or any information we have, especially a phone call, uh, and try and get people rescued so that's thankfully uh, something like that doesn't happen very often because that, that is a distressing uh, example uh, for our staff and for the family and people on board obviously but um, we deal with more um, survivability which is a really good thing um, helping people out getting them safe back into a chopper into an ambulance or just located uh, if they're lost without water uh, that's a common occurrence as well. Mm. It must be stressful work for you guys. I mean, I know you're saying there's a lot of people who've had a military experience and they work in high-pressure environments, but doing that for 12 hours straight, um, you know, as, as your full-time job must take an incredible toll. They, uh, they, it is a stressful job and um, they, they get uh, some clearance days off afterwards, so we always uh, try and manage, uh, especially as a manager of myself, try and manage um, stress levels and uh, downtime and home time for their, themselves and their families. So that's uh, very important too. And uh, also debriefing our staff after a critical incident uh, is very important about uh, sharing that information, getting it out and, uh, and communicating and discussing. Uh, so that's, that's it's what we do. Uh, it's what we do very well. And we do look after our staff as well. Yeah, that's so good. Um, I wonder, James, if I can give you uh, a bit of a hypothetical example um, that I'm curious about for me personally. So um, I went uh, climbing in the Dolomites in Italy in late 2019. Um, Had we gotten into distress there I mean we saw their you know red rescue chopper flying all over the mountains we knew there were there were people present but um I wonder if you could sort of give an example of you know had we gotten into distress in the mountains in the Dolomites um and we'd activated our beacon what would the process have been from us putting in that signal to you know getting that red rescue chopper to our location very very similar to what we do here so uh, search and rescue is uh, through the majority of countries around the world, uh, even third world countries, um, they do have systems in place. Um, so for Italy, they, they're very uh, specialised as well as a European power. Um, obviously, push the button, they will come up on their system like uh, one in Australia comes up on ours. So if you're stuck in the Dolomites uh, and you push a PLB, they will receive that activation. Um, if it's an Australian activation or with an Australian number, they still receive the activation as do we. We pass on that information to Italy in relation to um, who it may be. We can make the calls uh, from the contact in Australia and pass that information on to the local search and rescue services. So it's, it's, it's a system that works very well. It's been in, uh, been in tune for a very long time. I think AMSA started in 92. 1992 as AMSA itself, Maritime Authority, 
Safety Authority uh, and have been hating uh, the way we do things, especially with technology, um, each and every year. So um, certainly POVs anywhere in the world where they can be detected will come up via a satellite. So you just pick up the phone and what contact the um, whoever the foreign rescue authority is directly? Is that how that yes. works? Exactly. That's exactly how it works. Right. And I mean, you just have all those contacts. Is that like an international network worldwide yes. that everybody does that same thing? There's just an agreement that that's how it works. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a everyone's uh, scoped in internationally into each other's systems. So. Uh, we have a system called Nexus. We call it Nexus, our computer system here. Um, wherever something happens in the world, it'll come up with email and phone number uh, of that uh, search and rescue centre, and we can make the call uh, and send an email at the same time. So there's a, a two-way verification. Are there any countries in the world where that wouldn't happen, where you wouldn't be able to call them up and say, we've got an Australian in distress, can you go and save them? Um, we've got the contact numbers uh, by email. Whether they receive it or not, there and then is another matter. And whether they man it or not is another matter. So I'm not, I can't say which countries specifically, but uh, there, there have been instances where we've had trouble getting on. So we look at uh, neighbouring search and rescue areas to receive that information. But um, on, the, on the whole, on the majority, yes, we will get contact and, and pass information on in a timely manner through most of these search and area rescue centres around the world. And you've said before, um, you know, that generally you have a pretty good uh, success rate. I want to know, um, what is it like in the um, control room when, you know, you know that you've saved someone? Is it like in the movies where everyone gets up and is like, whoa, or is everyone just like another day at the office? Uh, it's probably not like uh, Houston where the rockets are successful and they're all giving each other high fives, so <laughs> not, not quite that. But um, uh, there, there is a... The people here come to work to save people, all right? So that's that's their mission each and every day. That's, they work, that's why they work for AMSA. They want to contribute to the saving of lives uh, and get people safely back to their families, uh, and, and that is paramount on our mission direction each and every day. So, yes, when someone is saved, there is a, a sense of uh, relief and gratification for the work we do within our own centre as well. Uh, and our media team try and push that out as well. And you've spoken to Chloe from our media unit before. Um, good stories where good work is done and people are saved, we try and get that out into the, uh, the eyes of the Australian public so they can see the work that we do because most people wouldn't have a clue what AMSA is or what AMSA means. Yeah, absolutely. Generally for climbers, I think we try, the gold standard is to be able to self-rescue um, and many people do courses in vertical rescue and try and learn um, how to look after themselves. Um, but obviously, you know, sometimes you just need to, to call someone in for help. So um, what would your advice be um, to people climbing or doing any kind of adventure sport in a remote location. I mean, when do you know that you really do need to call in or activate your PLB so you can get some assistance? Well, excuse me, you talk about self-rescue. So the, the paramount thing is to, before you even leave to your for your adventure, have a plan in place um, and have timelines in place and they're known by other people external to those on that um, 
group or doing that uh, that uh, adventure with you, that rock climbing scenario or mountain biking or whatever it may be. So have the plan in place, have people know, have your PLB registered correctly because that's uh, paramount that uh, those support numbers go to someone who can pick up an answer and know that, hey, yes, uh, James Ferrado is uh, currently abseiling in the Blue Mountains at the moment uh, near Lithgow. Um, he's got a party of five people. He's been doing it for seven years. He's very experienced. Um, he, he's self-rescued before. Um, he has water, has food, has clothing appropriate to the conditions if they're stuck overnight to prevent from hypothermia. So all those things should be planned and communicated and obviously being experienced rock climbers or your audience that uh, will be or those who want to uh, get into more, more rock climbing and be more adventurous in the future is to have that plan in place and have the equipment and do a risk assessment of where you're going uh, and have the, have the mobile phone and the PLB handy and we know mobile phones uh, are restricted by your reception and where you are, where there's a repeater station. And for those who are extremists, there's always satellite phones that you can actually purchase, but uh, you're looking five grand plus, so that's an expenditure that uh, may be looked at, and but still uh, a very great assistance on top of the PLB. Are there any ever? Are there ever any scenarios, James, where you guys receive a distress call and you respond to it? And you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe these people called for help. Like, what a waste of our time. Is that ever an issue? Or do you always respond? Are you always glad that people have called for help, even if it's something that might be, you know, relatively minor? No, no, if people push a button and they, uh, they have a fear for their safety, we will respond and we will gladly help at any particular time. It, uh, we're here to do and perform that task. 24-7 uh, and we're, we're happy and very happy people are actually carrying PLBs in the first place uh, because if you go without your PLB or don't even have one or haven't thought of one and you're out in the middle of nowhere without a plan, with no mobile reception, then we are looking at the emergency services and the police of that particular state doing an extensive ground search looking for people that can take uh, hours if not days or weeks. So, um, you know, we're very happy to receive any calls. I can just tell you that uh, a lot of the uh, activations we do get are in rubbish tips around the country. So um, people have thrown their PLB or EPIRB out, uh-huh. haven't taken the batteries out, it's inside a rubbish tip, it's activated, and uh, that happens around oh, geez, a couple of hundred times a year. So we're sending, we're sending t- homing ground teams out to the tips and other places to actually retrieve that to stop it going off deactivate it properly so the the, the secondary um, issue there is when you replace your uh, your PLB or upgrade it to a new one is to dispose of the old one correctly so that will save a lot of time and effort as well. How often should you do that replace them or upgrade them? Five years uh, is the standard of the the battery life so they're pretty good so you just have to be mindful of uh, when it was purchased Um, so if it's getting to that time by all means if you have doubts and you want a, a new battery and after two or three years, put it in your battery and it doesn't take that much uh, to organise and do it yourself. I mentioned before that uh, there are people in the international community who colloquially call a PLB the uh, make your mam cry button. Um, 
what should um not that I really think many uh non-climbing mums are listening to this podcast or you know (laughs) friends or family but what should uh perhaps people tell their family members um about the beacon or about you know emergency response to um incidents when people are lost or in distress in the outdoors what's what's a good way to comfort people who might be concerned about their loved one's safety well i think it's uh if uh, you're going rock climbing or i am um i'm going to tell my partner or, or son or brother or, or best mate um listen you know i go rock climbing all the time i've got my EPIRB, i've checked the batteries it's in good working good working order if it does go off something's gone wrong um, and the AMSA people, the good people at AMSA and the response centre there uh, will actually hear it, allocate people to come and find me or one of the group or one of the party that I'm with and get us out as soon as possible. So that's why I have it. It's, a, it's an insurance that, uh, that's priceless um, and, and a requirement that everyone should use. James, I've got a personal question for you now, um, and and I don't think this is uh, in any way incriminating or anything like that. But have you ever set off a PLB? No. <laughs> Never, <laughs> have, ever, ever. Have you ever been rock climbing? Uh, no, not no. I've been bushwalking uh, up steep mountains, but not rock climbing per se with ropes. But uh, my background is thirty-four years of uh, policing in New South Wales before I came to AMSA. Uh, and obviously from a policing point of view, um, organising the ground search parties and rescues for people lost in mountains, uh, national parks and, 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 and the like. So I'm very au okay with, uh, with people setting off PLBs or being in need of assistance and being located days later. Uh, and we've had a couple of instances in the Blue Mountains where people have survived for 12 and 13 days uh, just in the bush and um, in, with running water with streams. Um, so, you know, PLB will get us there very quickly. Uh, but no, I can answer truthfully, never set one off, never needed to. Do you consider it, or what would you say, I guess, to um, people who would consider it an embarrassing thing that they've had to set off a PLB and call for, for help? Well, can I just say, if, 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 they're going to, uh, if they've bumped it accidentally or somehow it's been inadvertently set off when it's in a backpack while you're doing your thing, and a chopper comes overhead, um, they should be very embarrassed. <laughs> because uh, it, it does cost money. Uh, a lot of money is put into search and rescue around Australia. Um, by all means, if it's, a, it's a, if it's an incident where people need rescuing, um, we'll be there as quick as we can. But uh, we want to make sure that the PLB uh, can't be activated accidentally by a bump. It has to be intentional. So I would, I would just ask all your audience that that's the case. Uh, so they're in a protected case or whatever the case may be um and when you flip that button and push that red button um help will be on its way but you don't cop a fine do you if you um no. yeah no, which, no, certainly not. which is pretty remarkable because um yeah obviously like you said it is a it is a you know you're using an incredible amount of resources but um yeah people should never be worried about incurring any kind of expense should they by setting off a beacon no, I think state governments have looked at that over the years. But uh, if you're going to be punitive, um, it doesn't always work. We, we use um, uh, and spend a lot of time uh, with education and um, and advertising the advantages of PLBs. So yes, there is there is a um, a cost to purchasing one or hiring one, which is that hiring one for a few days is negligible. But 
there's no there's no penalty, so um, there's no legislation for us to even chase anything up, and nor do we want to. Our main consideration is act, activation, finding out where someone is distressed. Have, have, hopefully, they can be found uh, very quickly. Uh, our assets will get in the air or on the ground or both and help that person out, get them home to safety. So they can go and see mum or partner or family or brother or kids. So that that's our consideration. Uh, uh, fines aren't even considered from our point of view. Well, James Friday from the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, I feel like you've made a lot of mums out there uh, feel a lot better about people's choices in uh, ridiculous hobbies. <laughs> um, so thank you for that. Is there anything else uh, that the, the climbing community should know about a PLB or about what you guys do? I think we've covered off. We, uh, we do a lot of jobs every year. Uh, we're here to help. Uh, we're professional. Make sure your batteries and registration is up to date. That's the two most important things that I ask all our climbing community to do. Uh, have the plan in place. Notify uh, everyone of that plan, where you're going, specifics uh, down to the GPS location. It says if you're all climbing and come unstuck and something untoward happens, we want to get you as quick and as soon as possible back in one piece and back at home. So um, I just uh, wish you all well in your planning, preparation, purchasing and registration of, of, uh, uh, of EPIRBs and PLBs and um, enjoy yourself out there. But don't forget, if you uh, have trouble, uh, we will be here to help. Thank you so much for that. We And, and you know, pass that on to everybody who works um, in the control room as well. We appreciate knowing that you guys are there just in case something goes wrong. It's one of those things, I think, where... Um, if you have a PLB, you'll never have to use it, right? You know, that's the, you know, that's that's the hope. <laughs> that is the hope, and that is the hope of everyone. So hopefully, I don't want to hear them coming from people, <laughs> but we do get them. They're there to help and, and rescue people. That's the that's the, why they're intended. That's why they've been made. So um, uh, all of you enjoy yourselves and your activities uh, outside in the lovely Australian wilderness. But uh, be safe at the same time. James, thanks for having a chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you kindly. Well, that was a bit fun. It's honestly such a relief to know that we have that kind of free support available to us when we go out and do what we do. And I would like to thank the AMSAR team again for all the hard work they do and for actually responding to a media request from an unknown climbing podcast to have a chat. That's pretty legendary. I'd like to say a huge thanks to Wild Earth, who supports the bail list. Thanks as well to Awesome Woodies who have generously come on board as a small business to provide support as well. Make sure you get in touch. Find The Bail List on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a climbing fail, bail or epic that you'd like to share, reach out and let me know. Thanks to those who have already done so. It might take me a little while to respond, but I will always endeavour to get back to everyone who gets in contact because I do really appreciate your support. And now, here's a little something from next month's episode. I still had the, um, like, the prussic on, so I undid the knot, and then I kind of just, like, was just slowly shuffling my prussic down, and the prussic was, like, right on the edge, and I was like, are you ready? Are we okay, all right, we're just doing this, and then it's like, boom, and it just went. It was so fast, like, it just spring-loaded. We kind of, we kept our faces away because it was like a, you know, it was like a rubber band that probably more like a, I don't know what it was like. It was so quick.